It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hi, and welcome to a new series of Talking France, a podcast brought to you by The Local, in which we explain all the latest news, cultural insights and essential information from France. It's great to be back. Happy New Year or Bonne Année to all our listeners. It's the start of a new year. There's a lot going on in France to catch up with. So we have a jam-packed episode ahead featuring the President Emmanuel Macron finally opening up about his love life, a look ahead to the ski season in the Alps, will there be any snow to ski on, and why folk in the southwest of the country will be paying more property taxes. And the battle lines have been drawn between the French government and unions over pension reform, which means strikes, of course, will have all the latest. We'll also look at the danger of more violence from far-right extremists in France and look at what changes for drivers in the country in 2023. And stay tuned to the end, of course, to find out some handy tips from our team for living in France. Now, I can't do all this on my own, of course, so I'll be joined, as usual, by editor Emma Pearson, journalist Jen Mansfield at our office in Paris, and our politics expert John Litchfield up in Normandy. Right, team. Emma, our editor, originally from the UK. Jen, our journalist from the US. It's good to have you back with us for a new series. What have you been up to, guys, in France? Well, in the last few days, I've been enjoying my Galette du Roi, which is the special cake we get on January 6th, Epiphany. I've got to say, maybe slightly controversially... I don't love the cake itself. It's all right. It's a little bit basic. It's just like pastry with frangipan. Although you can get ones with apple in them, which are a bit nicer. But the ritual around it is super fun, that you get a little crown with the cake. You divide the cake to see who gets the lucky fev or the little yeah. charm inside it. Yeah. The person who gets that gets luck for the whole of the year and gets to wear the crown. So I really like doing this little ritual. And also in the UK, we have a tradition where your Christmas decorations have to come down by epiphany. Otherwise, it's bad luck. So, you know, you take your decorations down. It's a bit sad Christmas is over but then you get the special cake with the crown it's all nice yeah it is galette de roi season in france it actually lasts pretty much all of january or maybe that's just for parents who we get invited to galette de roi goûters literally every saturday or sunday throughout january a lot of tantrums break out depending on which kid gets the fevre which i was confused with fievre which is actually fever although it is quite fever season in france as well isn't it a lot of people, uh, are a lot of people have a fever right now yeah, but, exactly. uh, but yeah the fevre is more what you want because it brings you good luck for the whole of the rest of the yes. year yes and what do we drink with the galette I think the traditional drink is cider. I'm not really a cider fan, yeah. but champagne is quite popular too. Although with mine, I actually had pisco sours because I was hanging out with some friends and we made cocktails. Not very French traditional. Wow. And speaking of cocktails, alcoholic drinks, dry January in France. Jenny, are you doing dry January? I'm not doing dry January, but our Galette du Roi was drunk with juice instead of a cider or champagne because my partner is doing dry January and some of our other friends are doing it too. So I think I'm seeing more French people this year than I have ever before doing dry January. January. So it seems like the trend is starting to pick up here a bit. Yeah, it started here um, a few years after it kind of began in the UK. Do you know what they call it here? Le Dry January? <laughs> no, I thought it was all like that. I don't, I don't know whether it has a name. I've only ever heard of it. I thought it'd be people. January Sec, but it's not. It's uh, or Janvier Sec, but it's. They call it La Défi de Janvier, often with the, the, the January challenge, challenge. Challenge, yeah, but. Um, <laughs> 
Surveys suggest 10% of French people participate, so it, it seems to be gaining ground. But apparently it's not really supported by the state. I think the wine lobby were on the back of uh, Macron a few years ago to make sure there was no kind of official endorsement of dry January. That doesn't surprise you really, given the uh, importance of alcohol in the country. It doesn't, no. Macron has said himself that he drinks wine every day, usually at lunch and dinner, although I imagine it's a, a small glass. Exactly. You've got a lot of work on at the moment. Macron will come to him right now. In Talking France, we like to pick out certain talking points and big news stories from the week. We'll start with who are we talking about in France this week? Emma, if I say the names Papotin and Macron, can you fill us in on what I'm talking about here? I can, yes. So Papotin is not actually a person, it's a magazine. It was founded in 1990 by a guy called Driss Elkesri, who worked as a teacher in a daycare centre for adults with special needs. And the interesting thing about this magazine is that it's staffed entirely by people with autistic spectrum disorders. The magazine comes out monthly, but there's also a TV show on France 2 that's a monthly programme, and it's called Les Rencontres de Papotin, in which staff of the magazine interview well-known figures such as politicians, singers, actors, etc. And they got a big name this week, when Emmanuel Macron was their interviewee. I must admit, I'd never actually heard of this before Macron did it, but it's a really interesting concept because the programme is presented as an interview sans filtre, without filters. And it's interesting because it kind of, it takes one of the challenges that people with autistic spectrum disorders have, that they kind of often struggle with social filters, boundaries, whatever... And it makes it into a strength by having these really direct interview questions. So some of the things they were asking Macron, they were like, do you have many friends? Do you still miss your grandmother since she died? Do you want to have children? As well as some more classic questions about the health system, education system, the war in Ukraine, whatever. But it's a really fascinating watch. I really recommend people go and check it out because it's interesting partly to watch how the journalists work. But also you see a really different side to Macron. He's much warmer, he's much softer, and he's more relaxed than he usually seems in public. And he doesn't flinch away from answering these questions which like I say are very direct. Yeah I mean the one clip or the one question that, that really was shown all over social media in France this week was a question about Macron's love life. Are we not? How did he cope with that? Uh, yeah, exactly. Technically, it wasn't even a question because what the journalist said to him was presidents should set an example and not marry their teacher, referring, of course, to the beginning of Macron's relationship with his wife, Brigitte. And yeah, he, he didn't flinch away from it. His answer was very simple. He just said, when you're in love, you cannot choose, before slightly pedantically clarifying that she was not actually his teacher, she was merely his drama teacher. Mm, he compared it, it's like, it wasn't my maths teacher or my English teacher. It exactly, was, yeah. It was, it was drama. only my drama okay, teacher, yeah. so that's okay. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yes, he, he answered it. And for me, that was another interesting thing about the programme, which is Macron's language, that he's someone who, when he gives speeches, he's often very complicated and quite convoluted. And I think it's one of the reasons he's often misquoted in the foreign press, that he gives these sort of very complicated speeches trying to present both sides of an argument. But in this interview, it seemed to me he was really making a big effort to keep his language simple, clear, direct, and to avoid sort of metaphors and non-literal use of language that people with autistic spectrum disorders often find difficult. And I mean, I think maybe he should learn from this from his future speeches because he was very clear and easy to understand. And the programme also got a pretty positive response in France, I think. It really did, yeah, from across the one interesting subject the interview reopened up is the way France tackles autism and its approach to people with it, particularly children. And that, is fair to say, has been far from positive in France. Yeah, um, France is really not a great place to be if you are autistic. And in fact, in 2016, the UN's Committee for the Rights of the Child said that France's approach to autism amounted to, quote, a violation of citizens' rights. And that was because of things like very slow diagnosis, difficulty of getting a diagnosis. There was no formal requirement at that time for schools to include autistic children in mainstream education. And there were a high number of adults, autistic adults, who were confined to sort of day hospitals. And part of the 
problem seemed to be the dominance of psychoanalysts in France, that until really quite recently, autistic children were likely to be sent for psychoanalysts. And this only really started to change in the 90s. And that was a result of campaigning from parents and from charities rather than any kind of initiative from within the medical profession. So since then, things have got a little bit better. Uh, the Macron government in 2018 launched a four-year plan for better autism services, which concentrated really on speeding up diagnoses. And they recruited a lot of teaching assistants to help autistic children in the classroom. But if you talk to parents, they'll still tell you it's a real battle to get a diagnosis. It can take months or even years. And even after the diagnosis, parents really have to push to get schools to put support in place for their children. So it's not great. Mm, thanks, Emma. Now, each week on Talking France, we take a look at news stories from around the country. And this week, we have one from the southwest featuring trains and taxes, two things synonymous with France, you could say. Jen... Explain what's going on and why perhaps some of our listeners in the southwest might be out of pocket because of a new train line. Yes, Ben. So as you mentioned, France does have a new train line coming in. Actually, it's more than just a new train line. It's a 14.3 billion euro plan called the Grand Projet du Sud-Ouest, or just the GPSO. In English, that would translate as the Great Southwest Rail Project, which to me sounds a bit like a Western movie. But overall, the goal of the project is to create a new high-speed line between Bordeaux and Toulouse. But it's also going to improve services from Bordeaux to Dax. And eventually, it's going to better connect France's west coast to Spain and the region. And when it's finished, it'll cut the travel time from Paris to Toulouse from four hours and 10 minutes to three hours and 10 minutes. So basically, it's just uh, improving services in the southwest in general. Mm, that all sounds good. What about the downside? Yes. So as you mentioned, there is a bit of a downside for taxpayers, uh, specifically those who own property within one hour by car from the stations that are going to be along this new high-speed Bordeaux to Toulouse line. Uh, in order to help finance the project, taxes for people who own property and land in that area, including second homeowners and business owners, they will have to pay a special equipment tax or an SET starting this year in 2023. So far, it does not seem like that tax is going to be super high, uh, though the exact amount is not entirely clear yet. The regional news paper La Dépêche estimated that the tax will represent an additional four to eight euros per household or business each year. But according to West France, uh, the amount will be an increase in pre-existing property taxes by about 0.4%. So either way, it's a new cost that households in this area are going to have to get used to, especially because it's going to be in effect for the next 40 years. Okay, now there's an interactive map on our website, thelocal.fr, if you want to visit and find out whether you'll be affected by these property tax hikes. Where else is in the news in France? We need to talk about the French Alps, really. We've seen a lot of pretty depressing images of brown hillsides where you'd normally find people skiing at this time of year. Emma, what's going on? Yeah, back at the beginning of January, more than half of the French ski resorts, so that's in the Pyrenees and the Jura, but particularly the Alps, were closed because there was not enough snow. Since then, things have got slightly better. There's been some snowfall this week, but many of the lower altitude resorts are still closed. And, of course, this is a long-term problem that it's linked to climate change. Many of France's alpine resorts simply cannot rely on having enough snow to create a reliable ski season anymore. But the long-term predictions are for temperatures to keep rising, so obviously this problem is only going to get worse. And, in fact, it's now so bad that 
local authorities in the Alps have assembled a special team to dismantle all of the rusting ski lifts that are left over in the lower altitude resorts that have closed permanently. Thus, found some figures from the University of Grenoble that said since 1951, 169 French resorts have closed and half of that is because of a lack of snow. Interesting. Now, many of our readers on the local and some listeners will likely perhaps be going away on holiday this winter uh, for a ski trip. Now, what happens if they've booked a holiday? What's the advice? Well, it's always been the case that the best time for snow is February, March rather than Christmas. And the February holidays tend to be when the French schools run their ski trips. So if you've got a holiday booked in the next couple of months, it's the best time to have booked. Altitude is more and more important. Obviously, the higher you are, the greater chance of snow. And experts say that now you can only really guarantee snow at 2,000 metres or over. So that does include some of the most famous French resorts like Val d'Isère, for example. But of course, these tend to be more expensive. But if you've already booked and there is no snow, there's not really much you can do about it because almost no travel insurance will pay out for the cost of cancelling a holiday if there's no snow. There are some specialist policies that have a clause called the peace closure coverage which will pay out in the pieces if your resort are closed for any reason, including lack of snow. But the payout is intended to cover the cost of just travelling to a different resort. So we're usually talking between 10 and 50 euro a day. So that certainly won't cover the entire cost of your holiday. Indeed, I'm due to go on holiday in February. You think I should just go anyway? Well, obviously, it's your choice. And clearly, it's disappointing if you were dreaming about going skiing and then you can't. But you're not going to get your money back. So I reckon you might as well go because increasingly, French resorts have a lot of non-ski activities on offer. And this is as a result of it getting harder and harder to guarantee snow. So there are some options like snowshoeing that doesn't need such good quality snow, plus no snow activities like luge or spa. And there's also an increasing emphasis on hiking and cycling opportunity and extreme sports like paragliding are now really big in the Alps. Yeah, one of the things we're looking at is obviously when parents take kids to the Alps often, more often than not, they put their kids in ski school for, you know, the morning or even the whole day sometimes. So what are parents going to do if ski school is cancelled because of no snow? Apparently we get reimbursed, but that doesn't cover for the problem. Who's going to look after your kids for the morning? And often you're stuck in tiny apartments in these ski resorts. I'm kind of having second thoughts myself about going. Well, I mean, like I say, I don't ski. I'm too old and clumsy. But I mean, I've had some really nice chalet holidays, even without skiing. I think there's plenty to do. So I, I you can take my kids, Emma. <laughs> I'm not taking your kids. What it really shows you is how much money is involved in the ski industry in France. It really is frightening at the prospect of kind of this industry pretty much dying out if climate crisis worsens in the years ahead. I mean, I would say maybe it's not the most frightening thing about the climate crisis. No, no, no. Just for the job. But in that region, the jobs yeah. at stake, you know, the money at stake, so many jobs in these resorts. I'm, whenever I go, I'm just, you know, the, the, the effort and the number of people it takes to run these things, you know, even yeah. ski instructors, thousands of them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, re- the resorts are being very, very hard hit already and they're really trying to sort of diversify into other stuff and to make the Alps a, a year-round holiday destination Mm. as well they're kind of really pushing summer alps tourism and again i've done some summer holidays to the alps and it's lovely i mean it's beautiful the hiking is great the cycling is great gonna be Um, too hot soon though isn't it (laughs) well it's the cool it's one of the cooler places to be so actually people might end up fleeing to the alps in the summer to get away from the burning heat of the mediterranean yeah indeed okay thanks emma for that and let's move on to the big subject of the week in france what are we talking about now on tuesday afternoon The French government finally unveiled its plans to reform France's pensions system. Unveiling the plans, Prime Minister Elizabeth Bourne said that doing nothing about projected deficits for the pension system would be irresponsible. The unions, of course, see it differently and have responded by announcing joint strike action to begin on January the 19th. The battle lines have been drawn 
And as ever with pension reform in France, it promises to be a long and disruptive fight. Now, Jen, what is in this new pension reform plan? So the headline news is that the pension age is going to rise from 62 to 64, so not 65 as previously suggested. And this is actually going to be phased in gradually. So 64 will become the pension age by 2030. There are, of course, some exceptions for people who are in dangerous or physically strenuous jobs like firefighters or the military. And there are also some exceptions for people who started work under the age of 18. But the main point is that many of the special regimes that previously allowed certain workers, mostly public sector workers to retire early are going to be axed. And there are more details on our website. Indeed, yes. I was just going to suggest visit the local.fr. We have all the details of the reform on our website. Now, one interesting thing is how France compares to other countries in Europe. Emma, tell us more. Um, Yeah, it compares pretty well. You won't be entirely surprised to hear. France has the lowest pension age in Europe for men, but there are several other countries that allow women to retire early. So uh, Austrian and Polish women can retire at 60, Bulgarian women at 61, And Sweden and Norway both have sort of flexible systems that encourage you to retire later with a better pension, but the official pension age is 62. And in France at the moment, the retirement age is 62 for both men and women. If you look around Europe, 64 and 65 are really the most common pension ages, but some countries do go older. And several countries are already sort of in the process of reforming their systems and are gradually increasing the pension age to 66 or 67. And the other thing that France compares pretty well with is in terms of how much workers get. At present, the average pension is 75% of the workers' former salary, which is one of the most generous in Europe, well above the OECD average, 58%. But it's true that you get what you pay for, and the French also contribute quite a lot into their pensions. So OECD data, again, for France, shows that France has the fourth highest compulsory pension contributions in Europe, with French workers paying, on average, 11% of their wages into their pensions. Mm, OK, it's a good time to bring in our politics expert, John Litchfield, who joins us on the line from Normandy. John has been warning us about uh, protests and strikes for months over this reform. But I began by asking John whether it was really necessary to reform the pension system in France. Yes, it's necessary in the sense that France has uh, retires officially anyway, retires earlier than any other EU country by several years, in, 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 in fact. And people, you know, are living longer in France just as they are elsewhere. France works on average less hours than any other EU country. So for reasons of competitivity, for reasons of keeping the present system in being in the years ahead with billions of euros of deficits now threatened as the years go on, something has to change. And there are various things you could do. You can make people pay more into the system. You could reduce pensions, neither of which would be very popular either. The simplest thing to do, and probably economically the most sensible thing to do, is reflect the fact that people are living longer by saying that they should work a little bit longer. Even if this reform goes through, and and it's the age of 64 by 2030, France would still be working less or have an earlier retirement age then than most other EU countries have now. John, we've discussed some of the aspects of this reform. Do you think it's actually going to go through as it stands? You know, Macron didn't push through his, his last reform despite getting it through Parliament. What about this latest effort? Well, there are examples of things. I mean, Chirac also attempted a big reform of the pension system in 95, which caused a huge outbreak of strikes and blocked the country for weeks, and, and he withdrew that. So there are precedents for things not going through. I, I think that the government has made its concessions at this stage. The reasons why we're now talking about a, a retirement age, official retirement age, 64 by 2030 rather than 65 by about that time, as Macron proposed during the election last year, is a concession to not number of people, but mostly to Les Republicains, the centre-right bloc, which holds the swing votes in the Assembly. And if they're aboard, which they seem to be, they may ask for one or two little concessions here and there. This can go through the National Assembly. So yes, I think this will 
will go through. The only possibility is that the, the, the protests are so crippling that the government would have to think again. I think mm. the protests will be pretty severe, but I don't think that's likely to happen. I think by the end of March, this reform will go through and it will take effect in September as planned. Interesting, John. Yeah, final question. You've alluded to these protests. We know in France, pension reform means protests. Pension reform means strikes. How bad do you think it's going to get, given the fact that all eight major unions are united against this reform? Yeah, I mean, that's the interesting thing. You know, there are eight trade union federations in France and the union landscape is odd in France and they rarely all agree on a big industrial action of this kind. But pension reform is one thing that usually brings them together and has on this occasion. And they're talking about the mother of all battles to stop this going through. There are a lot of angers out there about other things as well, including rising food and energy prices. So it's it's kind of a very bad moment in a way that Macron's picked, although he had perhaps much choice. Many reasons why some of the most militant workers should be even more opposed to this reform. Our old friends, the oil refinery workers, our old friends, the power station workers, railway workers, metro workers in Paris all have special regimes, which means they can retire even earlier than 62 at the moment. That's going to be abolished, or at least for new entrants into those industries as part of this reform. And they also have the power to bring the country to its knees, potentially. So it's going to be a pretty difficult couple of months, I think, for the country and for the government. I think that Macron is determined to put it through. It is kind of the flagship reform of his second term at this stage, and I don't think he is going to be deflected from it. And I think maybe because of the concessions, which mean that, for instance, the, the, the minimum pension is going to go up from by about another £100 a month to something like €14,000 a year, which is double what people get as an official pension in the UK, the minimum pension in the UK. There are reasons to believe that maybe he's done enough to soften it, enough that there won't be the huge and completely destructive protests that there might have been. But it's going to be difficult because there are a lot of other issues out there as well, which could, could join with this to bring many, many people onto the streets starting next Thursday, I think. Yes, indeed. Thank you, John, for all that insight. Thanks, John. Now, in recent months, France has seen a number of worrying incidents involving violent far-right groups or individuals with extremist views. In November, a local section of the GUD was reborn in Paris, It's a French far-right students' union formed in the 1960s. And in the same month, 13 members of a far-right group were charged with a plot to assassinate President Emmanuel Macron. They are due to stand trial this year. Then in December, 38 people with far-right ties were arrested after being found near the Champs-Élysées with weapons after the semi-final of the World Cup between France and Morocco. 15 of those were on a security watch list. There were also reports of far-right groups attacking Moroccan fans in other French cities such as Lyon. And then, of course, just before Christmas... There was the attack on the Kurdish Cultural Centre in Paris, where three Kurdish people were killed by a Frenchman. That investigation is ongoing. While the killer is not known to have links to far-right groups, he did admit to police that his motives were racist and he had previously attacked a migrant camp with a sword. Discussions around the threat of violence from extremist right have become more prominent in France. In December, France's Ministry of Interior demanded greater surveillance of far-right groups. Jen, this week you spoke with an expert on the far right in France to get a better idea over this threat of violence and a look ahead to 2023. What did he have to say? Yeah, so I spoke with Stéphane Francois. He's an expert on far right radicalization and extremist groups, and he's a political science professor at the Université de Mont. And he said that the threat is real but that it primarily comes from very small groups and individuals. So right now, French intelligence forces estimate that there are approximately 3,000 people who belong to the, quote, 
ultra-right. Uh, this has sort of become a catch-all term for people involved in far-right militantism that goes beyond simply being part of a traditional far-right political party like the Rassemblement National or simply having far-right views. This amount of people does not really represent huge growth, as there was an average of 2,500 people falling under this classification from the late 1960s to early 2000s. The real peak was actually during the Algerian War when there were about 7,600 people falling into this classification. But Francois did say that the far right is growing and that previously when the far right party, the Rassemblement National, was known as the Front National and when it was run by Jean-Marie Le Pen, Marine Le Pen's father, the political party itself was more accepting of radical or even violent elements. And what this meant was that Jean-Marie Le Pen had some power and control over the more fringe elements of the group. But more recently, Marine Le Pen has been working very diligently to make the RN more palatable and mainstream, and she even kicked her dad out of the party. And Francois said that this effort to be more mainstream has also made it so that the more fringe parts of the party don't recognize themselves as members of the RN anymore. Yeah, we've seen the far-right ideology become more credible in France in recent years. This has definitely been made clear by the fact Marine Le Pen's party won over 80 seats in parliamentary elections this year. Jen, it seems to be kind of becoming part of the mainstream far-right views. Yeah, and Francois explained that on one hand, now you have members of the far right who feel even more fringe now that the party is in the mainstream, but you also have a better diffusion of far right ideology with the party being seen as more credible nowadays. And this expert explained that there have been two effects. So basically, the fringe elements are a bit less under control of the mainstream party, so they're operating more or less on their own, or they've maybe switched over to Eric Zemmour's more radical party, Reconquête. But then you also see that there are more people who hear far-right talking points on a day-to-day basis. And to Francois, these things don't necessarily lead to more far-right militia groups being formed, but more so that there's a potential creation of smaller cells or lone wolves who will act on their own accord. So how has the French government responded to this threat? So Francois explained that the French Ministry of Interior has, quote, come to the realization that there is a threat from the far right. And to him, that's that's a pretty big deal. In his opinion, there has been an evolution in recent years. So the French government is taking the threat more seriously. Uh, so, for example, in the last two years, two far right groups have been banned in France. One is the Zouave. Uh, they were banned after they were violent towards members of the group SOS Racisme at an Eric Zemmour rally in December 2022. Darmanin, the Minister of Interior, disbanded the group for, quote, hatred and violence and accused it of regularly disseminating images and symbols of Nazi ideology. Uh, Damanan also disbanded the group Génération Identitaire in 2021, which was known for having put out this 2012 video called A Declaration of War. They also occupied a mosque under construction and they dressed as police officers in the French Alps with hopes of intercepting migrants that were looking to cross from Italy to France. And head of the World Cup final, the Ministry of Interior asked for more specific monitoring of far-right groups. And Darmanin gave an interview in December about the threat of far-right extremism. And he said that actually in the last five years, the French government has foiled nine far-right attacks. Ultimately, Francois said that the threat of organized violence from the far-right is still significantly lower than countries like the United States. But he called the French far-right groups a bit maladroit or clumsy, meaning um, that they're less sophisticated than their American white nationalist counterparts, for example. Now, in France, we've just marked the anniversary of the Islamist terror attack against the Charlie Hebdo magazine. What about this threat from Islamist terrorism, Jen? Did he mention that it's still greater than the threat from the far right? 
Yeah, he said that the threat still exists from Islamist extremism, um, but the real difference now is that the French Ministry of Interior has widened its focus to recognize that threats come from the far right as well. So basically, no more focusing on one thing, as Francois put it. Mm, Okay, it's a good time to bring in our politics expert, John Litchfield, who joins us on the line from Normandy. John, we've been discussing the threat of far right violence in France. How worried should the government be at this moment in time about this? Well, they are worried. And, you know, statistically, there are reasons for them to be worried. I saw there was a, a Europol report last year which said that something like 47% of all those arrested right across Europe for far-right would-be terrorist activity are in France. So there is a concentration of extremist manipulation, anger of issue about issues here, which can possibly spill over in, into actual violence. I think you have to distinguish between the kinds of people who recently tried to attack Moroccan football supporters and so on, who are kind of street protesters, who are sort of wannabe changes of the system, but not particularly organised in any serious or structured way to, to actually take part in finally very dangerous terrorist activity. But, you know, one can spill over into the other quite quickly. And France is a country which in which conspiracy theories thrive, in which the far right has always been very strong since mm. way beyond before even Nazism or fascism rose in France and Italy. So there is a kind of pool out there of people who could be sort of tempted to move into a much more dangerous activity. For the moment, I think the real terrorist threat still comes from Islamist terrorism. But I, there are reasons in terms of the numbers of these cases cropping up now, which there are good reasons for the government to be worried. Let's move on to our reader question. It's something that affects many of us in France, many people who visit France. It regards driving. Emma, there are some new driving laws in 2023 that listeners should really be aware of. There are, yeah. Um, Probably the biggest change is the expansion of these low-emission vehicle zones, which are enforced by what's known as crit air stickers. This is already in place in some of the big cities, including Paris, but between 2023 and 2025, this scheme is going to be massively expanded and it's going to include any town that has more than 150,000 people. So that's all of the big cities and quite a few of the smaller towns in France too. And basically what this means is that to enter a town or a city, each vehicle, and this includes foreign registered cars, so if you come into France on your holidays, for example, this includes you, must have a crit air sticker in the windscreen. And that sticker has a number that refers to how polluting your vehicle is. And then each city lays out the zones that certain stickers are banned from. So, for example, in Paris, Critère 4 and 5, which are the older, the more polluting vehicles, are already banned from the city. And from the summer of 2023, Critère 3 vehicles will also be banned as well. Other towns have their own restrictions. Some ban the more polluting vehicles just from certain areas, like the city centre. Some have bans at certain times. And there are also temporary restrictions. So, again, in Paris, when the air pollution spikes above a certain level, which happens quite often in the summer, there's a temporary ban on Crit Air 3 vehicles. So you basically just need to look out for the signs on the motorway, matrix boards, and also permanent signs coming into towns telling you which areas your car is allowed in. Okay, you mentioned fines. Yes. What do drivers need to know about fines and punishments? Uh, yep, you can be fined for not having the sticker at all, and you can also be fined for going into areas that your vehicle is banned from. And from 2023, they're also bringing in more automated cameras. So, like I said, this already exists in Paris, but enforcement has been pretty patchy, to be honest. It kind of depends on police stops. But what they're bringing in is more automated cameras. So it sounds like it'll be a little bit like the congestion zone in London. So you'll be automatically scanned as you come into these areas. And the the thing that you kind of need to know if you're visiting France is that because 
because this is a physical sticker, you need to order it in advance and leave time for it to be posted out to your home. The good news is the process is pretty straightforward. You order it online and the website is available in English and it's also cheap. Uh, the sticker costs €3.70, including postage if you're in France and four fifty one if you're outside France. And it lasts as long as you have your vehicle. You don't need to renew it every year. OK, that's Critter. Any other new laws we should know about? Yep, there's one that affects people who are driving in mountainous areas and it's a law that makes snow tyres, chains or all-weather tyres compulsory in the winter. This was actually introduced back in 2020 but they kept delaying the actual issuing of fines to people and they were having these periods of education for drivers. But from 2023, you can be fined €135 Euro if you're in one of these areas without the correct tyres between November and March. If you're a motorcyclist, you need to know that motorbikes are now required to have the regular vehicle inspection, which is known as the control technique. This is already in place for cars. It's kind of the equivalent of the MOT in the UK. And previously, motorbikes were exempt for it, but they're not anymore. And one for electric car drivers actually came in at the back end of last year. If you're parked in a public electric car charging point, your car must be connected and charging. And this is basically to stop people using the charging points as long-stay car parks, but you can now be fined if you're not plugged in and charging. Fantastic. Really useful information there, Emma. Now, before we end, it's that part of the week where we offer our listeners a few life hacks for living in France. A few tips, a few ideas. Shall I start off this week, guys? Yeah. This is just something I discovered over Christmas. There is, I don't know, there's a street artist called Invader in Paris. In fact, he's all over the world. He's put little mosaics on corners of buildings around the place. Now, there is also an app that goes with it where you can flash these little mosaics and build up points. Now, you know, this might not really be my thing. However, I discovered that kids love it over Christmas. And if you want to go for a walk in Paris, taking your kids with you is often hard to persuade them to get out and get their shoes on. However, if you say we're going to go hunting for space invaders, they'll never get their shoes on quicker. You can also, you know, you get to walk around Paris. They're also outside Paris, all over France. There's about 1,400 in Paris and hundreds more around France and around the world. You snap them, you get points, you go into competitions, there's a league table. But the main thing is it encourages you to look up in Paris and looking up in Paris is a great recommendation you discover all sorts of things whether it's street art great graffiti high up on buildings or just beautiful facades of buildings anyway recommend it guys download the app I think it's called Flash Invaders get out walking in Paris it adds an extra element to your, your little stroll through the city of light Emma over to you uh, yeah my life hack is if you take the train reasonably regularly in France you should get yourself what's called a cat avantage adult so France like most countries it has student rail cards young person rail cards and there are discounts for pensioners but there's also this really handy card for like the, the in-betweeners people who are aged between 27 and 59 it's called the cat avantage adult you pay 59 euro up front and for that you get a year-long card that gives you 30% off all TGV and international train tickets and between 25 and 50% off local trains, depending on the region. If you're booking tickets for you and a friend, uh, your travel companion also gets the 30%, and you can also get discounts for up to 60% for accompanying children. And one final thing, apparently you also get a 15% discount if you're hiring a car from Avis with your SNCF card. Fantastic, that's a great idea. Uh, Jen, yeah, finishes so off. <laughs> so mine is also about uh, visiting the city of Paris, and my tip is that you should take the bus as often as possible. It's, in my opinion, a great way to look up and see more of the city that you don't get to see if you're underground on the metro. My one piece of advice for taking the bus, however, is to ignore the estimates in terms of when the bus is coming that are available on smartphone apps. A lot of times they're wrong. Just walk to the bus station, see when the bus is coming, and decide then if you want to take it. And if you don't have any metro tickets with you, when you get on the bus, normally there will be a little sign with a phone number that you can text. 
And if you text that number, you can have your bus ticket that's good for that ride. Uh, so you don't have to worry about uh, if you've run out of metro tickets. Now, keep in mind that during rush hour, the bus is pretty busy, uh, but it's a bit more relaxing during the middle of the day when everyone else is at work. And if the bus is not your thing, you could always try the Bato bus, which is a Send Torbo, and it gives discounts for people who hold the monthly metro pass in Paris. Brilliant. Thanks, Jen. Another great tip. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode of Talking France. Don't forget, if you like what you're listening to, please leave a review on the platform where you listen to Talking France or even spread the word. Tell your friends and family about the podcast. And we'll be back with more next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>